0: Hello, and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Don Wells. Don is the Chief Empowerment Officer at Just in Time for Foster Youth, an organization based in San Diego, California. Well, welcome, Don. Thank you so much for joining our podcast series. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, and thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome. I do want to call out specifically that your organization won two different awards in the AOI Awards Program in 2021, and we can talk about that as we go through. But I just wanted to congratulate you on that because that's a fantastic award. It's a peer-judged program, so your peers selected your organization to be ready.
1: And that's always uh, great to be acknowledged in that way, and that the staff was very happy and thrilled that we got those awards, and it just gives us more confidence and inspiration to keep going with the things that we're doing.
0: Absolutely, and we're very glad that we could provide that for you to contribute to your program. But at any rate, we'll come back around to that, I'm sure. The first thing I want to officially ask you in this interview is if you could please share a little bit about yourself, your background how you became connected with the foster care system.
1: Sure. I think it's an interesting story. So, so I'll, I'll, <laughs> I will share. So my background actually was in mostly in media. I worked at local television stations, different places in the country. I was a consultant for marketing and media for a research firm that did work with stations across the country. It just so happened that for a lot of reasons, I ended up coming to San Diego I had been one of my consulting clients when I was doing that work. And I was the uh, creative services director in charge of community projects when the Columbine shootings happened. I saw lots of reports about the fact that there were a lot of young men around the country who didn't have role models, who didn't have that sort of guidance that they needed. And so I started a campaign at our local TV station to recruit male mentors. And our goal was to recruit a thousand male mentors by Father's Day that year. And so, since I was asking other people to do it, and we did, by the way, we got up to about 950 something, because I was asking other people to do it, I became a mentor myself. And I started mentoring a young man who was nine at the time I met him and his sister who was eight. And within just a few months, they went into the foster care system. So, like everybody else, I had some idea that there were issues in foster care and there are new stories you hear about the really bad things that happened. But my thought was that most young people who went into foster care had foster families that became that permanent placement for them, or they went back with their parents. And when these two young people went into the foster care system, I started to have a greater understanding of some of the challenges that they would face. And so I actually made a commitment to be sort of a quasi-foster parent for them. They actually came and lived with me at one point until I could try to get them placed with family members. But because I was doing that, I had sort of an official designation to be helpful and be consistent in their lives. So their lawyer happened to be one of the women who founded Just In Time. So I started this relationship with these two young people. About three years later, Just In Time was founded. Their lawyer asked me to come to this meeting when they were founding Just In Time, so I started out as a volunteer, helping with marketing for them so that they could get some awareness. My television station did some projects with them. So I was a volunteer from 2003 until 2009, and then that's that's when they asked me to join the board because I had left the TV station and started my own marketing company. And for some reason, they thought since I was starting my own company, I would have more time. So I joined the board, and within five months the person who was leading the organization abruptly quit. They only had one staff member at that point. And so they asked me to step in as the temporary part-time executive director, because they had never had an executive director. And when I tell this story and I say temporary part-time, people start either smiling or laughing because they know what's going to happen next.
0: So (laughs) so that was
1: in 2010. And I took that job, which was never part-time. And in March, I stepped in and they were said they were going to look for somebody for the full-time job. So April came and went, then May, then June, July, August. And by September, I started to say, well, <laughs> I haven't seen any candidates for this job that you asked me to do temporarily. And they said, well, things are going so well, would you consider just becoming the executive director? So that was 2010. And I've been leading the organization ever since then. And it's, it's the best job I've ever had, and it just fits in with my whole purpose in life, which I decided at one point, as long as what I was doing helped me to be a catalyst to improve things, and it was something that helped me to increase my capacity, which meant learning something all the time, and I had significant connections, that I would be happy with that job. And I had changed jobs basically every three years up until I took this one. So this is the longest continuous job i've had any place in my entire life and i love every minute of it
0: have you been in the same role the whole time
1: well i was executive director once they decided they were going to ask me to do that and up until two years ago that was my title and they said i needed to be a ceo as we were growing because that would give me more credibility and i resisted becoming ceo because it sounded like somebody who was in an office on the 13th floor you know, separated from people. And so I said, I will be a CEO if I can have my title be chief empowerment officer. And so they agreed to that. So I'm now the CEO of Just In Time.
0: I love the message that that title sends.
1: Yes. And that's all about what we are doing at Just In Time. We are focused on empowering young people. Basically, our idea is that every young person we're working with is creative, resourceful, and whole, and they have the ability to come up with solutions and to achieve what they are trying to achieve with some support and consistent connections and some guidance. But they're not deficient. They're not defective. They don't need to be fixed. They're creative, resourceful, and whole. So our whole idea, starting from that mental model, is what we're doing is partnering with them, not telling them what to do and not fixing them because there's something wrong with them. We're there to help them become who they can be. And they are partners with us in helping that happen.
0: I get the image of the, you know, don't walk behind me. I may not lead, don't walk in front of me. I may not follow, just walk beside me.
1: That's exactly exactly it. And part of that is as we've grown, as I said, I was the second employee at Just In Time And I made a commitment that we were going to bring on staff, people who had lived experience in foster care. So 65% of our staff have lived experience in foster care, which creates a whole different dynamic for the young people who come to us when they need something. It's also that everything that we do is informed by and designed by and to a large extent executed by people who have experience with the problems that we're trying to help solve. I think it's been the secret to the success of our organization and also that idea that we are not an agency, we are a community. People have more a sense of welcome with a community that they help to create themselves. And the young people we we work with, we call them participants. They're not clients. We don't have cases. We have people who walk in the door and say, here's what my situation is. And they're talking to somebody who has had lit experience, who understands to whatever degree what they've been going through, and it immediately creates more of a sense of trust and understanding at the very beginning. And then those young people also, because they've been through and been part of the just-in-time community, they endorse the effects of and the intentions of that community. So a big barrier for the young people who have been in foster care is building a sense of trust and a sense that... I'm not going to be disappointed or have promises not kept, and we're able to do that by having them, with their first contact with us, talk to somebody who came out of the foster care system and had a really positive experience with our community.
0: It seems like you're being very intentional with the language that you're using there. Do you see that as really making a difference?
1: It's great that you're saying that because I have something on the wall in the office, which is words mean things. I actually have a t-shirt that says words mean things. And maybe it's my marketing background. I'm not sure. But we are very intentional about language. We don't call what we do programs. We have services and we have resources. Because the idea with programs is it has this idea of a fixed thing that we're going to fit you into our program. That really constrains and makes a person fit what you have to offer as opposed to you walk in the door, we talk to you, and trying to determine with you what services do you need and what resources do you need. So three people walk in the door at the same time, they end up doing three completely different things based on what they need. So there's the idea of we're listening to you and we're helping you to achieve what you want to achieve, not we're telling you here's what you need to achieve for us to meet what our goals are. So it's a different way of looking at things. But even with the people who support us financially, we call them investors. They're not donors because the donation idea is that we're giving you something and it's it's a gift. Investment means that we're going to give you a return on the support you're giving to us. And we're going to measure so we can tell you what that return is. So you're investing in the future of these young people and you're investing in the health of our community. So it's something that you're doing for us to be able to achieve something going forward. When I first became the executive director and I looked for definitions of sustainability because the organization was really young and it was not really as stable as it is now. But the best definition of sustainability I found was one that said, if you can demonstrate measurable benefit to the community, the community will support you. And so I immediately went on to using your word intention, and we talk about intention constantly at Just in Time. What is the intended impact we hope to have, and how are we going to measure that impact? How are we going to say that we've succeeded at what we're doing, so that at the end of the day we are not looking back and saying we had some people who came and we had this many people who who did this program, but we're saying this is what we intend to happen. And so we're going to design our services and resources to get to that goal that we've set for ourselves. And if we only get 85% there, you know, that's good. But how do we get further than that? How do we keep improving? How do we keep adding things that we need to add? And we get those answers of what we need to do from those participants and from our staff members who have that lived experience. We're constantly improving and and constantly adding and filling gaps in the services for the young people we serve.
0: And it sounds like really that Stephen Covey habit, starting with the end in mind, is yes. really key to the work that you do. You're not just cobbling together activities. It sounds, again, very intentional. You're building based on what you want to achieve.
1: Absolutely. And those intentions are written down for every, every service that we have so whether it's even a basic needs request somebody comes in and they need rental assistance our basic needs intention is to help stabilize that person so that they you know are not in a survival mode but then to connect them to other services or to connect them to people so that they start to get engaged in the community the young people that come to us at first they are either hesitant to ask for help because they've been told that now they're adults so they should be able to do things on their own which course, is not true for people who have intact families. When their children turn 18 or 19 or 20, they're still asking for and being offered help with all the preparation that they've gotten. So we have to convince that it's not a sign of weakness to ask for help. And we also have to help them to see that they can trust the help that's being offered, that a person who says that I'm going to be here for you is not going to disappear when you're in our community. And so it, I should probably go back and say another part of my history and my path to just in time, which is the young people I was talking about that I was mentoring and who were eight and nine when the young woman was 11. So I'd been in her life for three years. She was at my house. We were watching Shrek. She really liked Shrek. It was like the 13th time we were watching it.
0: I like it too, actually.
1: (laughs) So she turned to me in the middle of the movie and she said, why are you still here? Because I'd been in her life continuously for three years. And for her, that was unfathomable. I mean, it's not something she expected. And I thought in that moment, no young person should be asking that question of the adults that are around them. And so when I came to Just In Time, I brought that sensibility with me. And before I took the lead, the idea was that we were offering people resources they need and hoping that they might make some connection to volunteers that would have a lasting impact And I flipped that around and said, the biggest gap that exists for young people in foster care is disconnection. They become disconnected from their parents when they're in the foster care system. They tend to stay disconnected as they're moved around with different placements. And then when they leave foster care, they're still disconnected. And people do not do well when they're disconnected. They just don't. You can give people all kinds of resources, but if they don't have a sense of belonging and connection and that people care about them, they won't thrive. That's the way human beings are built. Our big thing, and we sort of summarize this in saying that we help young people become confident, capable, and connected. And so part of it is that creating that sense of personal empowerment and confidence in their own strengths. It's also having them build their capacity with experiences and knowledge, everything from learning how to do a budget to going to one of our events where they're sitting next to a CEO of a company and having a conversation and learning that they can do that. And they have something valuable to say in that conversation. And then the connections, which just reinforce all the other things that we're doing, you know, they have somebody to celebrate their accomplishments with. One of our staff members talked about how he he almost avoided any sort of recognition because it just reminded him when he got it that there was nobody there to celebrate it. And so it was a negative. And now the young people who are part of our Just in Time community have people not only support them with the challenges they have, but routinely celebrate their accomplishments as well.
0: But it takes a while to build that trust if a young person's been in care for a while. I was in care for, I guess, three years, and I jumped around to four different placements. And even in just that short period of time, in three years, I basically learned not to get close to people because I never knew when I was going to be leaving. That's and so, exactly right. Yeah. So it takes time to build that. It's not like they show up at your doorstep and like, okay, I'm gonna trust you now. So
1: again, this goes back to our model, which is first of all, people come to just in time. Originally it was they would get referrals from other places, other organizations. So somebody might be helping them with, you know, getting their college scholarship, but they would tell them to come to just in time to get their laptop and printer. Or they were moving into housing, transitional housing, they would say, Go to just in time to get your bed and furniture. A lot of the referrals came that way. Now the referrals come from other foster youth. So we get endorsed by the brothers and sisters and people that were in care together. They tell people to come to Just In Time. The visual is you walk in the door, you see all of these, some people you know already, and other people who, once you start to talk to them, tell you that, oh, yeah, I was in foster care for 17 years and I came to Just In Time. I got this kind of help from them. And then I I ended up graduating from college with support from them all the way through. And then I went on to get my master's degree and they helped me with that too. Those testimonials from people are not me trying to convince somebody to trust us. It's the same thing as if you hear an advertisement to go see a movie, you might decide to go. But if your friend who you know has similar sensibilities that you say you should go to the movie, that's much more powerful than any sort of promotion or advertising you hear. So we, we get endorsed by that. And the fact that people who were once participants at just in time are now working for us is also a huge endorsement about the power and the authenticity of the organization.
0: Yes. You know, I think it's probably a good opportunity to learn a little more about the structure of your organization and the different services that you offer. One of the organization or one of the awards, rather, that you won was the AOI awards for a midsize size organization. And so maybe we can talk about the size of your organization. How many staff do you have? How many youth do you serve? And then we can go from there.
1: Okay. As of this week, I think, (laughs) unless somebody else has been hired, I think we have about 42 staff members now. And as I said, 65% of those have lived experience. There's a youth services staff, which is the largest part of the organization, which is mostly lived experience. We have a few people who are not, but the overwhelming majority of people in youth services are lived experience, including the director of youth services, who was a participant at one point and graduated and got his master's degree. Now he's running that part of our organization. We have a volunteer services staff of four. There's one person in volunteer services who's a lived experience. Because we have anywhere from, at the height, we had 800 plus volunteers because volunteers are part of almost every service or resource we offer because we're trying to, again, build that community of support, an ecosystem of support for them. So when they turn 27, they still have that. And by the way, our service window is 18 until your 27th birthday. And you get services from just in time. If you were ever in foster care, you don't have to have emancipated. You don't have to have been in San Diego. And if you were in foster care for six months, when you were 13, you are eligible for services from us. So that's a different eligibility than anybody else that I know of. So there's volunteer services, youth services. We have marketing department that now has four people in it. We just added two people and the two people we added are lived experience. We have a development department that raises our funds, generates our investments. I think that's about five people and three of them are lived experience. Our operations manager is a lived experience person and she has an assistant who's lived experience so those are the main things and then we have our accounting people we have two people there so again, it's not just that the people delivering services are lived experience it's all throughout the organization and we try to build leadership within our organization and You know, some people, it's their first job and they might stay for two or three years and they go off to do something else, which is fine. My philosophy as a leader is that I'm here to help you to get to your next job. So that can be your next job at just in time or it can be your next job someplace else. But I'm here to help you to reach your potential and your capacity.
0: So are you a proponent of what's called
1: servant leadership? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, my, My job is to give you the resources you need and take obstacles out of your way after we sit down and and determine how what you're doing is going to help us to achieve our goals. Is that pyramid that you turn upside down where the board I mean with the board, the board tells me how they think we should be moving. I talk to my direct reports, my direct reports talk to their direct reports, and then the direct reports actually serve the participants. Once that's all set up, then it reverses where the participants are at the top. Our coordinators are serving them the managers are serving the coordinators i'm serving the managers and the board should be supporting me and making all of that happen so that's how we look at things
0: and so okay so i have a sense of your structure and your staffing so what are the different areas of services that you provide young people who are part of your program as participants
1: first of all when we started we said we don't want to duplicate any services somebody else is already doing so we tried to just fill in gaps So, as I said before, if somebody else is giving scholarships or helping scholarships happen, we do the gap of filling in with laptops, printers, dorm supplies, school supplies, and support for the people. So, we started out just trying to fill in gaps, but what we wanted to do was make sure that all of our participants had the same sort of support that they would be able to count on if they were in a stable, healthy family or community. Over the course of time, we've added things when, again, the participants have said, this is still a gap for me. Well, let me go back to one of your first questions before this one, which is we typically serve about 800, 900 individual youth every year. And because of the way we're structured, where you become part of the community, somebody might come and do college bound when they first go into secondary education, they might graduate and we may not hear anything from them for a couple of years, but then they decide to come back because they need, or they're looking for a job or they find a job and they want to do financial literacy. So you're part of the community. It's not necessarily that you're always in a a workshop or cohort because it's really based on what you need. So you can go away for three years, come back and say, this is what I need now. And we're there to help you. Plus, we have events all the time and we invite people to come to our events. We have an annual family reunion picnic is what we call it, where we have everybody show up and and you just stay connected to the community and have that sense of belonging. But what I was going with this was that when the pandemic hit, our service went from about 850 to 1600. Because we reached out to everybody, everybody who was in our service window. And we even reached out to alumni who were 27 to 35 and said, We know that this is impacting you, that things are being disrupted. What do you need? And some people were reluctant at first because they felt that they shouldn't be asking for help. Again, that idea that you've given me a lot of stuff, I should be able to do this now on my own. And we had to talk to them about all the other people in general population who were moving back in with their parents because they needed to. And so we, we were able to get people to see that it wasn't a sign of failure, that they needed to some assistance getting past this bump. And I even took a page from my own life, which is my mother used to send me $50 checks. Even when I was 50 years old, she was still sending me $50 checks on my birthday. Mm-hmm. So we mm-hmm. sent everybody a $50 check and said, we know you're not asking us for this, but we want you to know we're here for you. And here's just something that you can use any way you want. We called it a resilience check. And so we ended up doubling the number of youth we were serving during the first year of the pandemic. So what we do is we do we have basic needs, emergency basic needs. So you know your hours get cut back, you need help with your rent. You're just coming out of foster care, you have tried to make things work on your own and now you you need a food card or you need a trolley pass to use the trolley. You are going to move into your first apartment, but you don't have the first and last month's rent. So we'll help you with your security deposit so you can move in. You're setting up your first apartment. We collect furniture from the community, gently used furniture. So everything you need to set up your apartment, and then we add to what is donated to us with things that we buy. Everything from household items and bedding to vacuum cleaners. Vacuum cleaners, by the way, are a highly sought after item. Everybody needs one, but you don't want to spend your discretionary money on a vacuum cleaner. So you're unlikely to go out and and make that one of your first purchases. So the vacuum cleaners are very popular. So those are sort of the basic things, my first home and basic needs. We have a financial fitness service, and it's three tiers. One is basic budgeting for somebody who's just getting started. The second tier is helping people save and have a rainy day fund for emergencies. And then the third tier is learning to do sustainable finances for the future. And in the third tier, you actually are able to do match savings. So you start off with, you save a certain amount. After three months, you can match for $100. Then after three more months, $250. Another three months, $500. Then $750, $1,000, and $2,000. At the end of your time, you can match for $4,500 toward some asset so it's not you're saving money to buy TV, but you're saving money for your study abroad in school, or you want to buy a car, or you're, you're thinking about buying a house and you're just going to go help for your down payment. The financial fitness program is, again, something that tries to meet people where they are, whether they're just getting started or whether they've been saving and now they really want to try to do something that's going to help them for the long term. Uh, College bound, uh, I sort of alluded to that. Laptops, printers, dorm supplies, school supplies. You get a uh, college bound coach who commits, by the way, to if you ask them to, they will come when you graduate from college. It's It's making that kind of commitment. The national Rate for college graduation for, for foster youth is like 3 to 6%, and college-bound is 75 to 80% of our, our participants are either still in school or have graduated since 2006 when we started this program. For us, it's all about that connection, that continuous reinforcement, plus all the other things that we do around it. So we actually did a survey of our college-bound participants and said, what would be the things that would be most likely to have you drop out? And they told us five things, which included, you know, I'm working and going to school. If I have to sacrifice something, I'm going to sacrifice the school if I don't have time. And so we did some things around supplemental income for some students to let them get through that. Housing was another thing. So we did housing support in terms of rental assistance, tutoring. We helped pay for for that. People asked us for that. So it was doing all those things that supported them based on what they told us were the pain points to help them move forward. We have a number of different things with employment. One is called Next Jobs, which is, stands for New Entrepreneurial Unknown X's Unknown Jobs of the Future and Trades, where we help people to explore all those different avenues. We do a Shark Tank competition for those the entrepreneurial participants who pitch ideas and they get a cash prize at the end of it to help move their idea forward. We have a transportation section that helps people get their driver's license and also auto access, which is we have a fund that helps support people buy their first cars. And we have career horizons for young women and bridges to success for young men. Those services are all around that confident portion I talked about where they do strength finders. We talk about self-limiting beliefs. They learn networking and they connect, again, the volunteers there who Help them to not only understand different job possibilities, because when I first started, every young person, if you ask them their career goals, they were either social work, teaching, something to do with law enforcement or medical, or I don't know. And so we created these two resources. So they were meeting people who were computer coders and had jobs in design, every possible job that you could think of. So they met people, who had those jobs who they could get some sense of really what was possible and then sometimes be able to actually get some referrals to possible job openings. The last one is Rise to Resilience, which is our newest service. And actually the last year has been our most popular one, which is all about mitigating the effects of adverse childhood experiences. We actually did a survey survey of our participants once we found out about ACEs and all the research that had been done. And we also looked around to see who was doing something specifically aimed at our population and couldn't find anybody who was really focused on that. Hopefully people do have heard of ACEs and it's it's like a 10-point scale of things that happened to you before you were 18, things like family members incarcerated or some sort of physical abuse, divorce, somebody went to jail, some mental health issues in your family. All those things. And of the people who took that survey in our community, nobody scored lower than an eight out of ten. And lots of people score ten. So we said we needed to do something about that. We launched this Rise to Resilience service, which is all about the things that have been found to mitigate the long-term impact of adverse health experience. So it's a cohort that goes throughout the year and then people can also just drop in and out of it depending on what they where they are in their lives. But it talks about nutrition, sleep, exercise, mindfulness, trauma-informed therapy, play. We added play to, to be one of the things that we wanted people to, to use Is also another thing that mitigates adverse childhood experiences. And as I said, it's become the, the number one use service that we have. Last year, there were about 250 of our participants were doing roster resilience-related work. The idea is creating a healing community so that people don't feel like they're alone. They also understand the, the whole thing that has been talked about so much, which is, it's not what's wrong with me, it's what happened to me, so that they can start to look for solutions. It's also a way of, for people who are parenting it also gives them some awareness, and we've heard this from those youth who are parenting, that it's it's helped them to have a real clear idea of, of what they want to do differently for their own children than their experience.
0: Wow. You know what? Aging Out Institute is on the track of building online courses for people who work with young people in foster care and those aging out of the system. And our first course was developing resiliency in foster youth. Yeah. And so everything that you're talking about, like, yeah. (laughs) Part of the course was listening to an interview that I had with somebody who helps build resiliency and foster youth directly. That's what their organization does is they go around and partner with other organizations to provide events and experiences for young people along those lines. And then also exposing people to research around the types of things that you're mentioning those things that can help mitigate those adverse childhood experiences. And so that's something that, that we're very proud of, that we put that out there as our first. But it's a resource. I mean, you probably have all the resources you need there. But if anyone listening is interested, just go to agingoutinstitute.org and you'll see a link to our courses.
1: Well, you can never have too many resources.
0: The, all these services, I don't want to cut you off. It sounded like that might have been the last one, the rise to resilience. You know, I think, I think that it is. I don't have to
1: look <laughs> in front of me. Sometimes I, I lose track. The only other thing I would mention is that what we also have is something we call the coach approach to mentoring, which we started because as we had more and more volunteers, we were noticing that some of them would come in and they would have sort of that deficit mindset for our youth. And they would think, I'm coming in to fix things for them and to tell them what they need to do based on my experience. So we started this coach approach to mentoring training where Every volunteer who comes in goes through it. And in the training, we also have some participants and staff members who are part of that as well. But the idea is that you start from a place of creative resource for the whole. And as you said, you're coming in to walk with the participants, not to push them or, or to lead them. And the training is based on the idea that when you come to work with one of the young people that we work with, you set aside your agenda. Because it's really not about what you did and how successful you were with the solutions you came up with. It's them. And so you're there not to judge and not to tell and not to fix. That's all inside your own agenda where you're doing that. That was not smart. You should have done it this way. And if you do it this way now, it'll be much better for you. That's not what you're there for. You come outside your agenda to understand So you have to active listen, which is so hard for people to do, is to really listen. You are asking more curious questions so you can get clarity on what's happening. And in that process, you're helping the young people get clarity too. And the third thing, instead of fixing, you're empowering because they can come up with the answer themselves if you are a great listener and you're asking great questions. And these trainings have been just so powerful for everybody involved. The volunteers love it because not only does it help them become better mentors, but they take the same information and they've told us they use it with their own children and with their spouses and with people at work. It's all about being in a place where you're giving somebody the gift of actually listening, which is very, very rare. We're trained to get to an answer fast. All of our academic training is the person who gets to the answer fast is the smartest, they get rewarded. But when you're coaching somebody, it's not about you getting to the answer and it's not about the speed of the answer. It's really helping that person gain the confidence in their own problem-solving ability. So the answer that they come up with, they have more ownership and they are able to flex that muscle. And the next time they have a problem, they don't need to come to you for you to fix it again. Because you've helped them to get confidence in their own ability to do that as well.
0: Wow. I love how you, like we said before, are being so intentional with your language and the mindset, not to have that deficit mindset. I think that is tremendous. And it provides that foundation of where everything would be coming from, right? All of the communications and all of the working with the young people would be coming from that perspective. And I just think that must be just so impactful.
1: It is, and every week at our staff meeting, we start off with a story of impact, and then we do affirmations of staff members based on people who have done things that are aligned with our core values. So we're we're constantly reinforcing the culture, because that's really what makes things work. And you talked about the mental model, and to me, that's really the core of everything. Just a couple of weeks ago, we were we were going through this exercise, and it was this iceberg visual where... At the top of the iceberg, these are the outcomes and results you're getting. But beneath that, there are behaviors that lead to that outcome. And beneath that are the systems that you set up that lead to the behavior that lead to those outcomes. But underneath all that is the mental model that you have, because the mental model, if you have a deficiency mental model, you create systems that are based on that. And those systems reinforce the behavior that is based on that mental model of deficiency. And then you get results that come out of that. So our whole thing is you need to change that foundational thing. Otherwise, you're trying to change behavior and trying to change systems without changing the way people are thinking about things. And I was in a meeting with our child welfare services people recently, and I said, you know, I know this is probably not going to change right away, but even talking about using the word placement, is that really what we want to say that we're placing children or do we want to be connecting them? Because if somebody's in foster care and they had you know, six placements, that's totally different than if they had six connections that they made. And if you are approaching it from a connection standpoint, it changes the way you are doing things. It changes your expectations. It changes the way you build your processes. So it does seem like that's a trivial thing, but the words that we use create the reality that we live in.
0: I agree. And I think what you were saying, and also the words that you were describing there, they give young people control.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Instead of placement, you're connecting them. That means that that young person, there's actions that they're taking, right? Right. (laughs) To connect, you're just helping them, putting them together. Right,
1: and that's really also the basis of our, our idea that we are a community, we're not a system or an agency. I think people have good, they have good intentions, But the words and the mental models determine then what happens. And to your point just now, you belong to a community and you help create that community. You don't belong to a system. You're in a system and the system creates its own rules and you have no control over that. And so systems can serve communities. But right now, those two things are sometimes not even connected. And I, I like to ask people. If you had two choices, which one would you choose? Would you want to be part of an education system or an education community? Would you prefer to be part of a healthcare system or a healthcare community? It changes your whole idea of what's happening just by changing that one word. And so we want to build communities, not more systems. The systems can be things that support a community, but the community is the thing that people will want to belong to want to join in with, who they will help to create the outcomes themselves without it being something that is acting on them, which systems often do. Even law enforcement, law enforcement system versus law enforcement community even sounds better.
0: Absolutely. I have a feeling that I could talk with you for another two, three, four hours about your organization and philosophy and models, but our time is coming to a close here. But I did want to just call out that your organization also won the Aging Out Institute Youth Impact Award. And that is really recognizing an organization that is doing a really solid job of measuring the impact that they're having on the young people, the results that you're getting, not just that you are getting the results, but you have the process in place to gather that information in an effective way. So I just wanted to give you a couple minutes to comment on, on that process and maybe a couple of highlights of what you do there.
1: Well, again, from that very first moment of saying that being able to demonstrate measurable results or measurable benefit would be what would create sustainability We immediately got a system. We used Salesforce. We started tracking everything. So we could tell you not only that somebody participated in College Bound, but when they graduated, if they graduated, if they went on to graduate school, what their degree was in. The same thing with tracking everything that we do, the financial fitness. Here's how people are saving. Here's what they're using as their asset for match savings. We track levels of confidence. We track job success all of that and we have tracked it from the very beginning back then so once 2 years ago we did a what we call the lasting impact fulfillment tracking which stands for lift i am a marketing person we sent out surveys to about i guess 600 of our past participants who were 27 to 35 we got responses from about 122 of them we asked them questions about where are you right now with your housing your employment your financial stability your sense of well-being your significant connections? Do you think you've broken the cycle of foster care? Because that's sort of what the overall promise is that that's going to happen. And then we asked them, what was missing? When you were here just in time, what was missing for you that you wish had been there? And what was the most significant impact that any of our services had on you? So we have all of that data. We continue to refine and keep tracking things. 91%, by the way, of those participants, alumni, said that they had broken the cycle of foster care we were able to to see not only how they had done better than the national statistics for foster youth, but we also looked at what kind of equity existed. How close were they to people who were not impacted by foster care at all in housing and employment and financial stability? And then they told us also that they wished that there had been more of an emphasis on well-being, that something like Rise to Resilience had been in effect while they were there. And so that reinforced what we're doing now. The people had done the best. They told us the single most important service we provided was the financial coach, that that made more difference to them than anything else, which again, is that's a combination of a resource and a relationship together. One of our associate directors now, when she came to us, she got a financial fitness coach. He was there at her wedding. And when she decided she got married, she was going to buy a house. He was there advising her still into her 30s. So that's what we're looking for that community of support and it's not just one person, one mentor, it's the whole community that's providing different things so that you have a sense of belonging and you can count on it and it's not going to go away.
0: That's so amazing. I love that. I love your approach. I love the way you use language. I just I love you guys. <laughs> I <think> you're awesome. <laughs> I wish they were just in time for foster youth everywhere and <laughs> not just out in San Diego, but I just think you're doing amazing things for young people out there, and I really do appreciate the work that you do.
1: We're in a place where we're
0: talking about, I call
1: it scaling by sharing. We are absolutely always open to talking to people about what we're doing. We helped a organization get started in Santa Clarita from scratch. They're now celebrating their fifth anniversary in June. And so we think that this is an important way of looking at things, and we are happy to share information with anyone who wants to do this work.
0: Well thank you for making that offer. I will also ask you if somebody wanted to share with you either monetary or donations or or can people give items for young people how would they go about doing that?
1: You can go to our website jitfosteryouth.org and it has ways that you can get engaged in so many different ways. So if you go there that's a good starting point to find out what's available and it fits what you want to do and what you have the capacity to do.
0: Wonderful. Well, I think, unfortunately, I'm going to have to bring this to a close, but thank you so much Don for participating in our podcast series. I've really enjoyed our conversation today and I wish you all the best. And I'm looking forward to in a few months following up with you all to find out, how you utilized the AOI awards that you received and how we might have contributed to impacting some young people's lives.
1: Can't wait. And by the way, you have an mm-hmm. open invitation to come to one of our staff meetings on a Wednesday morning staff meetings. You can oh, just sit in. I,
0: I, virtually, I assume.
1: Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> I'd love to fly out to San Diego, but.
1: <laughs> you can do that too once the uh, winter gets here again.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you again, Don. I'm going to wrap things up here. For those of you who have listened to the end, thank you very much. And we do put out a podcast every couple of weeks or so. And you can just go to our website, agingoutinstitute.org and look for the podcast link to find us. Thank you for listening and until next time.